This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for joining me for another Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. Really appreciate all of you joining us. If you haven't done so, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do so. Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and please rate and review the show. And, of course, you can find all of our programming, CannabisRadio.com. On the episode today, I want to go ahead and talk about a new fellowship that's been recently announced, an award that will be given to legacy cannabis operators who built the cannabis industry. And if you know me for any amount of time, we've talked about New York State rolling out legalization or you know, just talking in general, especially with New York State, because of all the and all the other areas where every new state that green lights for medical or adult use, there's always th- this ongoing issue that and it goes back to a couple of years, really last year, uh, talking to the folks from Urban Aroma on our Empire series and making the point about legacy operators that paved the way. And really did start the market for what a cannabis dispensary can do today. And that they're being left out of the mix when it comes to social equity. So I really appreciate this story here. And I thought this was really important was being put together. It's the Justice Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to facilitating the entry of legacy cannabis operators to legal cannabis market. And joining me around to talk about this important story, I'm here with the chief... Chief Operating Officer of the Justice Foundation, Cheryl Marie Powell. You might remember here on Cannabis Radio, uh, hosted the, the program Cannabis Life Radio here on the network, and the founder yeah. of Raw Rolling Papers, Josh Kesselman. Cheryl, Josh, thanks for being on. Thanks for having us. I really yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. I really love that this is being put together because we've talked about this, and I'm and, and it really is to where when I see social equity, the licenses being given out. You know, I want to make sure that it's always about when it comes to representation, it's about who is getting a seat at the table and who's being brought in. And I don't like the idea when I see sometimes social equity being used in some ways, a performative way. To me, there are people that if they want to go ahead and be in the industry and they're willing to go legit, let's give them the room to do that. So let's talk about the fact that this was put together. Uh, Cheryl, first, talk to me about what is the situation now with legacy cannabis operators, the opportunities that are given to them right now before this grant was put into play? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having us on. You know, we're longtime family from uh, Cannabis Life Radio Days. As mentioned, you referenced Urban Aroma, their fam to us, the Justice Foundation, as well as Raw. So mm-hmm. shout out to Umi RBG. Um, he is on the board of the Justice Foundation. He is the president of our board. So um, it's really great to to be with family once again. And we're going to continue um, this trend and, and reunite as often as we can. With regards to the state of legacy operators, um, you know, we ran into challenges as far as like evangelizing, you know, what is legacy? Why did, do they deserve these opportunities? Um, because there wasn't a definition for legacy operator. Um, when Steve D'Angelo founded the Justice Foundation, um, he also uh, helped to support legacy operators in, in New York specifically. Now we have a, a number of legacy operator councils up and down the East Coast. Right. Um, so we founded Unlock the Unified Legacy Operator Council just for that purpose to kind of bring legacy operators together so they can find their voice so we can be consistent with the voice of the actual legacy operators who are are still actively um, in the trenches and those who have been in the past. 
So as I mentioned, one of the challenges was defining legacy, right? And Unlock and uh, Justice Foundation came together to define what is the legacy operator? What does it look like to assist our regulators and legislators in um, helping to give one priority to this community that built the cannabis, enjoy, cannabis industry that we all get to enjoy currently, um, as well as uh, amnesty so that they can share their stories for license opportunities for jobs and things like that. So this definition that we're evangelizing and we've had um, great responses from CANRA, which is the Cannabis Regula Regulators Association. Um, I brought one of our legacy operators, Ivan Ferreira, to their last in-person conference, and we sat on panels, um, and we evangelized our definition, and also through ASTM International, which I am an officer in D37 Committee on Cannabis. Um, we also are putting our definition for legacy through the standards committee um, uh, for through the balloting process. Um, so with that said, the, the legacy operator, just so we're all on the same page, is an individual who has commercialized cannabis for the majority of their income or sacramentally distributed or ceremonially distributed um, cannabis outside of the legal framework during the period of prohibition um, and predating legalization by at least five years. And the reason why we put that time frame in is to make sure that we're making a distinction between some of the more recent opportunist activity where people are opening up, where there's a smoke shop or another type of shop and they're selling cannabis, but they don't have the same code or um, uh, background as our legacy operators. They also were not individuals who were harmed by the criminalization of cannabis. So their perspective, their lens is very different. Our legacy operators, not only did they build the industry, but they also paid the price for a lot of harm. So um, when we talk about the state of legacy, it's really evangelizing who they are. It's looking for opportunities to prioritize them for opportunity. It's um, holding back enforcement until there is the opportunity for them to pay, participate in a fair and equitable way. And then um, it's getting amnesty so they feel safe so they can come forward and share all of their best practices. And that's why I'm really excited about this partnership with Josh and his team and, and Raw, because they saw, and, and they've been an institution in our industry for so long that they've seen the whole evolution of you know the legacy operator, how they play. And they've seen a lot of people go from legacy to legal um, and they understand the harm that was done to this specific community and wanted to do something about that. And that's why we're so grateful for this fellowship being created. Um, and I can't take credit for it. Um, you know, Josh, and, uh, you know, just felt the need to uh, contribute in some type of way to our legacy community, these guys who've been out there doing this work. And he partnered with uh, Steve to come up with, let's define what this could look like. And, you know, as the COO of the Justice Foundation, I'm more responsible for the implementation and, right. and, and making sure that we do things in a way that's consistent with, you know, the, the brand that is raw. Um, we we uh, have great relationships with our partners, and we're excited about the future with them, but also wanna, consistent with the values of the foundation. I want to unpack something real quick when you say that. Because when we've yes. seen some rollout of legalization, medical adult use, part of it was always, well, we want to have those that might have criminal backgrounds to give them a second chance at employment. But no, let's give a second chance yes. for those to become entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah, And bring that point across. I wanted to make the point that I love the fact that this is the part where it's got to be not just, you know, be able to get and be a part of the industry in some kind of a service role. No, they can own, they should be able to operate if they're willing to go with, again now along with the new compliance, the new rules, what the governing body, the cannabis control board and their state's going to do. And, you know, they should be given just as much right at a social equity application, a, a CAURD, conditional adult use for the specialty license, whatever it might be, give them that role forward. Josh, I want to come to you now because okay. not only did you decide, you know, to contribute and, and also be, you know, a cog in this fight here for legacy operators, you put the name on the grants. So it's, it's again, we're looking at raw seeds fellowships, providing opportunity to legacy cannabis, cannabis, cannabis officer operators, excuse me, those prior to its legalization trying to navigate the new legal market. And with that said, you made a point in the press release when we talked about this, you know, they said that 
taking great pride in supporting and empowering the pioneers. You refer to them as pioneers who laid a foundation for the industry. And while there's a significant transformation emerging from the shadows and embracing legality, it's crucial that those who build it from the ground up are the beneficiaries along with the communities they come from. While major companies are rushing to take advantage, we need to support the small entrepreneurs who are the true lifeblood. Yeah. What is it about that connection that you realize that, okay, sure. I mean, it was product that people wanted to get. It was still supply and demand, even though the laws didn't allow, but I mean, it shouldn't be penalized now if they're going to follow the rules because the, the the rules have changed. The laws have changed for them to be able to do something that was considered illegal. It's the same thing they deal with prohibition of alcohol. But once it became legalized, okay, if they're going to follow whatever rules are required, then let's let them have that opportunity. What do you say, Josh? Well, you know, you have to understand I've been doing this for a long time. I've been in the smoking industry since 93. So I've watched a lot of people come up and I was friends with Jack Herrer. And I think about like how pissed off he'd be if he was still alive, like how incredibly pissed. Cause this is exactly how we, none of us wanted it to go. All right, here's the thing. I've got an old criminal record from the nineties. When you have that kind of record, when you have that kind of thing, it forces you to become entrepreneurial because you can't get a normal job. And I've met so many legacy operators over all my years. And there's a kinship we have. There's an understanding that real legacy operators actually have with each other. There's a level of respect and understanding because we've all been through such hardship. And yet we know the truth. We know that it's just a plan. So you kind of carry this weight and knowledge with you. And we, whenever we meet each other, man, there's just this instant connection. We both get it. And I've seen how what good people they are because of what they've been through. You know, it transforms you. It just does. Right. So. I, I believe truly that the legacy operators are better entrepreneurs than non-legacy operators because of their knowledge, because of the hardship they've really been through. And because they've gone through all of this and they're still around, that tells you how much they love the plant, which is what this is supposed to be about. you know. And when you have more of a connection to the plant, we have more of an understanding to it, more of a belief in it, well, then your heart's in it and you care more about the final product, which is something that some guy who used to work at Walmart never will. <clears throat> right. So I really have so much respect for these legacy operators. I have such admiration for them. I feel with them, you know, a kinship that they deserve my respect. They deserve much more than I'll ever give them and much more than any of us will ever give them. Because remember, if it wasn't for them, the three of us wouldn't be talking and there would be no industry. It was their persistence that paved the way for all of this and I don't feel like enough respect and ado is given to them when they are truly the reason why we exist. I'll tell you like this. Legacy operators are the taste makers. Like some of the product, any of the cush that's out there, the colors, the crystallization of any bud or any kind of dab or whatever anybody wants to go and do of a plant or a flower. It became because they first got adopted into cannabis in the first place. They didn't start in the dispensary. They didn't start at you know, in some medical treatment center, they went right. and went to their dealer. And the other part is, this is no disrespect to the butt tenders out there, but the butt tenders cannot do, cannot hang with those legacy operators because they're the ones not only, you know, promoting the product, but selling it and using it themselves. They understand it completely. And if you want to talk about somebody that has the reputation to go ahead and sell product, yeah, like you said, a butt tender that might work, have worked somewhere else, and they might just be a you know recreational or just kind of casual. No, it's something different when it's their lifeblood. It's your it's yeah. your it's your income. It's what you're making a living off of. You know what you're doing, and you're going to do a better job than what anybody else could do in terms of pushing out product and and also having a sense of like what the what the community needs because you didn't have that normal storefront. You didn't have that nice setup and packaging and all these different brands. You were doing something that was. You know, you created, you harvest it yourself. You might get it, cultivate it, and you might go ahead and process it and make it pliable to go ahead and give to whichever your customers are. But that doesn't take away that they don't understand the supply chain. They don't understand, you know, what people want. Yeah, They understand supply and demand. They should get that advantage, that chance to go up front forward because they understand it better. I agree with you, but the key thing is, remember, that bud tender would not exist 
if it wasn't for the soldiers that came before them and fought the good fight for so many years. And they're not being given the respect that they are owed because the industry would not exist. Anyone who, um, even if they use CBD for pain relief, they still owe that to the legacy operators. And I don't think people recognize the truth of that. These are people that fought the good fight. They really did. Which what needs to be happening is the mentors need to be the legacy operators to recruit and build up better bud tenders. Yes. And then when they have their own business, they can do right. that. And then we all win. You know what yes. I mean? Then the whole yes. industry it becomes a different type of industry, which is what I wish it was based on the legacy operators. And the way that they can do it is in such a more authentic way than someone who used to work at ExxonMobil coming over with a couple million dollars and investing and doing his thing. Right. That's okay, but that's uh-huh. not that's not real. He's going to cut back in ways that are not you're not going to notice. And it doesn't lead to the perfection of the experience which is what I believe in. Cheryl, please go ahead and jump in on that. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with Josh's comments. And, uh, you know, one thing to remember is that um, the, the legacy operator is also responsible for the low market acquisition costs that our, you know, licensees now are, are experiencing. So we created not only um, the infrastructure, but we created the cannabis consumer and the cannabis consumer that will go into the stores that was created by the legacy community. And as a result, um, they're not paying as much to create this whole market, create the concept, create the product mix. Mm -hmm. We know what clients, um, what, what customers want, what cannabis consumers, cannabis consume um, connoisseurs want. And a lot of that Intel is contained into the legacy community. Another thing to keep in mind is, the legacy community is not a monolith. And that's one of the, the stereotypes that, you know, Josh and myself and uh, Steve, we fight all the time is like people have these r- crazy generalizations about the, the legacy community. It's like, no, these are businessmen and women, and they're as diverse as businessmen and women in any other industry as well. So they don't all like the same thing. They don't have all have the same backgrounds. They don't all have the same business acumen. You know, we have highly skilled, sophisticated entrepreneurs in the legacy space with great intuition, um, <laughs> which has kept them safe all this time. Um, and the industry can definitely benefit from that. And I, I mentioned the code earlier today, but there's a certain code and understanding of what's permissible, what's not permissible in the legacy space that we could benefit from um, in in our our new emerging cannabis industry. Um, You know, people like to say, oh, legacy operators, they don't pay taxes, et cetera, and so on. They pay taxes every day. They pay taxes with their freedom. They pay taxes with, you know, um, dealing with unfortunate robberies and and things like that, that they had to survive in order to um, maintain um, their, their lives and their businesses. So we can we can only benefit by the inclusion of our legacy community. I think that's how we grow in a, in a positive way. That's how we um, triumph over, you know, the, the historical um, growth of the alcohol industry as well. Um, we can do it better um, as this, this next wave of prohibition. We have the talent. Unfortunately, we have entrepreneurs like Josh and his team who remember who remember the fact that um, the legacy community was there when nobody else was there for these patients. Um, The legacy community maintained and um, kept these genetics alive. And um, people who don't forget and contribute to the future of this inclusion will really have an important space in in history. Um, And for the the foundation, you you mentioned the career uh, placement and things like that. We have a three-pronged approach. We're a very simple organization. It's all about removing barriers. We eliminate barriers by one, our first prong is entrepreneurship, whether it's ancillary, um, like, you know, uh, rolling papers like raw or getting a license. We um, had a pilot in New York where we were successful in getting 20 um, licensees, their cannabis licenses, which is unprecedented for a single round in a single state um, at the same time. Um, And then um, also other entrepreneurial pursuits, which will enhance the industry um, globally. Keep in mind, this is a global industry. The second problem is about career development and career placement. Some people aren't meant to be owners. We're not trying to shift every legacy person into ownership, but if they choose to, they should have access to resources. And fortunately, we can lean on a company like Raw that has 
a lot of best practices that they want to share, not only with the funding, but also with uh, the knowledge of being in um, in, in, in the industry. And Josh has made it clear. He's like, yeah, I want to meet some of these guys. I want to, um, you know, mentor. I want to, um, you know, share some of my story if that'll help them. And, uh, and I really appreciate him wanting to have skin in the game in that way. And then the third prong is around making sure that we um, review contracts and make sure they, that our legacy operators, if they're licensing their genetics or their brand, that they don't get into predatory situations. So I, I just love the alignment here. And I think what um, Raw is doing is role modeling to industry, how you give back and, and give way back in a way that's super impactful that we'll be able to measure the results for. Yeah. I want to make one point real quick before we go into break down what the grants are and the process here. When it comes to, Cheryl, you made a great point about how which legacy operators are out there that really just wanted to go ahead and just make the money, but we're not so necessarily invested in what product they were putting out to people. I have a legacy operator. I'll say that I knew from here in South Florida that I was growing up with, and he prided himself on whenever he scaled and he weighed his product and he put it out there it had to be quality because he wanted to make the most possible. But the other thing he also was hindered by was that the fact that he had to go to certain people to get the right kind of product. And this is before dispensaries we had here in Florida. It was whatever you could find that, you know, was being brought in from Jamaica or other countries and, you know, finding the way to get that product that was already cultivated and harvested and brought to him so you can go ahead and get it ready for selling. But the difference for him was he wanted to cultivate. He didn't he wanted to take out the middleman. So he moved to Arizona when Arizona went medical and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to start buying, you know, property out there so I can grow. Because he wanted to be able to be a part of that because that was the thing was cut out the middleman, control the product, control the quality of the product. Because when he had the chance to grow it at home or wherever he was, because the other part was, you know, right before he moved from South Florida, he was growing up out of his house in the garage. He had the whole hydro, you know, the uh, hydroponics going already. And he had product he was doing himself, but he wanted to always scale higher. So once you know, the market changed, he wanted to do that. There, there was... There are two, uh, maybe two or maybe more three significant types of legacy operators, and how do we want to have them service or integrate it into the into this whole fold? Whether it is they want to be able to be in that cultivation, the full seed to sale process, and have control of what's going on because they know it and they wanted to, that they always wanted to have their own business without having to cut anybody into the into the pie. And the other ones, they just understand the business and just want to be a part of it and get paid. That's all great. It's it's motivating. It's good to go and see that. Now, in the Raw Seeds Fellowship, the grants are being awarded to three legacy operators negatively impacted by the justice system due to cannabis laws. There's a eligibility process. They must be defined as, quote, an individual who commercialized cannabis for the majority of their income or sacramentally or ceremonially distributed cannabis outside a legal framework during the period of prohibition predating legalization by five years. And the grants are end quote, and the grants will be up to $20,000 per awardee and will use to start their legal cannabis business. So that right there, Josh, talk to me about, you know, when the process, uh, you know, going through the eligibility process, who's the one, who are the three that will be deemed the chance to be awarded those grants Talk to me about the process by which who were the people that you want that, you know, that are going to be allowed to be able to get those grants. Well, I made a point of making it where I didn't choose because I don't have enough understanding and knowledge in order to do it. I know what I'm not good at. You know what I mean? Right. I don't want it to be three people that I'm friends with or something like that. So I turned that completely over to them. The only thing we talked about was to make sure it was people that genuinely needed the help and were deserving. And fortunately for me, that's up to Steve and Cheryl to figure out <laughs> so that I don't have to do that part. And then, right. by the way, this is only the beginning. This is the first grant. The hope is that we'll be doing many more. Right. Yeah, no. I, I agree. This is this is just a starting point. And um, when we talk about eligibility, um, you know, we wanted to keep it, you know, uh, broad enough that we can uh, capture um, individuals who are who ordinarily get ignored and and. And, you know, we, we, it's like when you're in high school and they have the award ceremony at the end of senior year. And then it's like the same person's going up for scholar athlete. They're going up for, you know, volunteer of the year and all this stuff. And then there's the, the person who just lives a regular life and they've had a little bit of hardship, but they have a great story. If you'll give them an opportunity and listen to them, 
We're really looking for those people who have a narrative around their love of the plant, um, how um, the, the criminalization of cannabis has harmed them, and the fact that they took risks um, and uh, did unusual things, extraordinary things, um, just for the love of the plant, and it has um, challenged them in the future. And they have good ideas. They, they want to help uh, society with their ideas and, and they have innovative ideas. We want to make sure that we're contributing to the right people. So as you mentioned, the, there are three big grants, which are $20,000 each. Um, that was uh, designed um, by Josh as well as Steve. And then we're going to be able to give have more flexibility with smaller grants that will just you know help a larger number of people. Really excited about that. But legacy is like, um, you know, the 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 basis that's the fundamental you have to be part of this community because this community is really special um this community understands what the future should look like in the same way that jack Herrer understood what the future should look like as mentioned by josh so yeah. we want people who are values aligned first like this isn't just like you know a, a blank check to do whatever you want this is a um a seed as it says a raw seed so that you know that someone cares about your dreams and that it's unfair acknowledge that it's unfair that when you went to the bank or when you um went to go get that apartment or that commercial real estate that because you had this criminal um, background you weren't able to take advantage of that opportunity um and and it's uh, been a disservice to not only your community but also to your family so that's really what it it's all about is finding the people with um, like minds, um, uh, pure hearts, love for the plant. And they can look at Josh and what he's done with Raw and say, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it too. And those are people we're looking for. We're going to elevate those people. We're going to elevate their stories. And we'd love to come back on with our legacy operators. And, and uh, when we get to the point that we're making our selections, the people who are selected, so you can get to know them and understand why we are so dedicated to this work. Um, you know, And that's why this Raw Justice Partnership is just the starting point. And we're encouraging other people to jump in and, and join us. This isn't work where we're saying this is just ours. We're, we're trying to um, put out a concept to the community that to make to have true community reinvestment. Yeah, we want money from cannabis dollars and things like that. But a lot of us have benefited from the criminalization of cannabis turning into legalization and the activists that were in the capital. So what is your contribution? Uh, and Raw really stepped up in a big way to demonstrate what that can look like. And I'm looking forward to seeing others do that. Stay tuned. We have more Blunt Business coming up after a short break. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I want to ask yeah. one thing, Josh, real quick of this thought process. Regardless of how the good nature and the real work that's being done here, the one business aspect I can think of, you're a business owner. I would imagine this, that if you have a legacy operator, especially in New York State, and there's a reputation for that person, oh, if you want to get the best product, you need to go to this person. I'd imagine that would be a much that would be quite a marketing tactic to have where if you use the fact that somebody's a legacy operator and they're one, the one running the business and they're in front and people know, Hey, you know about us. So we went from the street corner to the, the storefront. Yep. And that I would imagine is a great marketing aspect. Oh, heck if yeah. Promoting the fact that you want to promote a business. It's not just some big, big box, you know, from yeah. one, fortune 500 CEOs running the company. <laughs> no, no, this is the guy that came off the street corner they had other people that were selling their slinging around the the, the the cannabis, and now look, we're we're legit, we're made now. Like exactly, I, think, I always said when I saw the New York market, I was like, "There's a reason the illicit market is still so good because 
there's ha more than half of, of sales come from the illicit market because the reputation of the people that are there. So take advantage of that, right? Exactly. Hell yeah. That would be, I mean, think about the marketing opportunity for that. If you make it, because when they know that you came from the streets, they know that you're real. They know that you didn't come from ExxonMobil or Walmart. They get it. They're like, oh, wow, that, that is such a great opportunity. It's such great marketing. And Cheryl blissed off one little key point we have here. It's just a promise, but we really hope they'll do it. We want to help these people succeed so that they'll do it too. They have to give back. We have to create a loop here yeah. so that we create this beautiful cannabis market of people who really have their heart in it. You know what I mean? This right. has got to go on and on and on and on. <laughs> you know, we can really, I'm hoping we can plant some seeds that continue to grow because a true seed, it sprouts, and then that plant creates more seeds, many more, and you end up with a whole forest. Cheryl, I want to bring a point to you real quick. Just from the side of communicating with the leaders, you know, civic leaders, government leaders, curbing the illicit market by doing this right here, by getting the outreach for legal, for legacy operators to be given the opportunity to go ahead and be brought into the fold of the legal market. Is there anything you can tell me what Justice Foundation has done so far to talk to these leaders and to talk to these cannabis control boards to open the door for this opportunity now to cut out the yes, illicit market? Absolutely. So I, I, you know, I know, I know it's a motivation point for a lot of government officials to, um, you know, stifle the the illicit market. I, I'm challenged because I understand, and and some of this is coming from the community, like community boards, some of our churches, some of our other houses of worship, saying, "Hey, these guys are selling to kids, and they're doing all this stuff." So, you know, that's why we made we made a clear distinction between legacy um, and this uh, new emerging um, gray market. So, you know, to answer the question, I want to really emphasize that distinction. And then as we're evangelizing with government agencies, I men mentioned that we spoke to CANRA, um, uh, the Cannabis Regulatory Agency um, or, or Association. With We spoke to every single regulator in the country and we showed them legacy in the form of bringing Ivan with us. And the year before, Steve actually spoke at the camera in person. So they, they can see legacy and, and it humanizes um, our individuals who are, are really, uh, as, as the MRTA, the New York MRTA describes them, otherwise law-abiding citizens. Right. It's, it's in statute. These people are otherwise law-abiding citizens. So by humanizing them, that helps with the government conversations. The other part of legitimacy is the work, as I mentioned, that we're doing with ASTM by standardizing the definition for legacy, standardizing sacramental use, standardizing, um, you know, what are our experiences. So when governments come on board with their adult use um, regulations and legislation, they can go straight to a standards organization and pull up these definitions and plug them right into statute, plug them right into regulation. So that's a huge win for uh, for us as well. Um, you were speaking earlier about, you know, that transition. The one thing that legacy operators who do get licenses are doing is they are transitioning legacy consumers. And that's what everybody wants, yeah. right? We want legacy consumers to join the new uh, emerging uh, legal industry. And then when we were doing applications at the Justice Foundation, um, you know, a lot of guys came to me and they were like, well, this is a very limited license type. It's a retail license. I'm a delivery guy. And I was like, apply anyways. If you qualify for um, your a business that's been profitable for over two years and you have that cannabis conviction that has harmed you for all, all this time, just apply. We'll get you the resources, the mentors, the, um, you know, the support so that you can be successful, but don't say no to yourself. And I think that's what's really um, consistent in our messaging with the Rossi program is never say no to yourself. You're right. going to make an attempt and then the resources will be become available because we have enough of us that have made that transition into the legal industry that can support you. And we're already seeing where some of the licensees are giving back. Just like Josh had mentioned, where you know we have Roundup programs, so someone who gets a card license, um, retail location, they can have customers round up at the register, which doesn't cut into their their profitability. But just being able being open to us having a Roundup through their POS system, they're also giving back to our cause. So it's really important that to to Josh's point that we are a catalyst for a movement 
of contributing to this legacy transition, which also becomes a legacy consumer transition to right. tested products in a legal space. But with a consistent experience where it's like, I know where my weed came from. I know the guy who's selling me my herb. We need we need those guys in the business because people want to buy from the farm that they can that is relatable. They want to buy from the guy that's relatable, someone that they know. We're creating that experience by giving the opportunity to these entrepreneurs to participate in some way, whether it's um, plant touching or ancillary in the industry. And again, you'll still know your guy. When I look at the stats right now for the illicit market. There's a lot of stats have been put out there to say that in the U.S., roughly 75% of the $100 billion cannabis market is illegal. And in California, two out of every three cannabis purchases are made in the illicit market. And, you know, law enforcement having to take the time to go ahead and shut down operators, especially in California and New York. What is it? 10,000 operators that were illicit, you know, illicit market, which, by the way, we already know that the illicit market, there are a lot of actors in there that are just trying to make a quick buck anyway. And we don't know what kind of product you're putting out there, which is putting a damper on the real legacy operators that have been doing the right thing. So the illicit market is clouding up the real legacy operators from who was actually trying to do the real thing and actually trying to do honest business out there, even though it might have been illegal by the by the law, but it's changed now. That's where government should need to understand. Well, what is it that you need to like? What is, what is in it for me? How about more tax revenue? You're going to make more of a share of the revenue that comes in by getting these operators to come in to go ahead and, and sell more cannabis. And then don't worry about this whole thought process of, oh, let's, well, you can just wait to deschedule and decriminalize it so that cops don't have to worry about it anymore. No, 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 no. You want this to be where we're at now. The market's being set up as it is in every state, and the illicit market can be taken care of by giving the legacy operators more room and more opportunity to jump in. Now, is that an argument that you feel like with the Justice Foundation, Cheryl, do you feel like that uh, are they starting to be much more receptive to that thought process and say, you know what, this is the answer to the illicit market to let these legacy operators be brought into the fold, welcome them in, go through the process of being, you know, if they have to go through some evaluation process, they have to go through and say, okay, well, law enforcement said, well, this is what they did, but, you know, they didn't harm anyone. They just did what they they did even though the rules might have changed but you know what five ten years ago the rules were different but if those rules were applied today what there is now they wouldn't be in trouble of anything yeah i think that's a really good point at you know i'm all i'm being pulled into a lot of conversations um we are very much um arm in arm with our legacy operators but also with um government agencies and their desire to um have a legacy integration right legacy integration is the, the goal but if you're you're honestly um in support of legacy integration you have to take two main things into account or really three main things into account um you know the first thing is safety our government agencies have a history of not being um, necessarily forthright, um, ha harming this legacy community. Um, so we have to acknowledge that, that, yes. you know, you're asking me to go to the people who arrested me, separated my family, um, you know, took away what I worked hard for. So we have to create that environment of trust. Um, that's what I had to do with the legacy, with the Justice Foundation when I first started doing this work is develop trust with the the um, the legacy community. And I had to earn that. And I think right. government needs to make sure that they're earning that and creating a place of safety first. The next consideration is timing. We cannot be overzealous with our enforcement coming before we're giving people time to transition. So once they trust us, we are going in the wrong direction if we say, hey, we're creating this industry for you, you can, you can join. But before we create an application for you to fill out, to join in a process, we're going to enforce against you. And that there comes the distrust right again. So um, you have to, one, you know, create that framework, create a place where you can, um, they can start to trust it. And we can eliminate some of that suspicion against, uh, with regards to legacy community and government. Um, but yes, timing is essential. You cannot start enforcement until after you have, I would say, multiple rounds 
for people to participate. So the first round are you're going to get the first movers, but there are people who are cautious and hesitant. And they're going to say, let's see what they do to these guys who move first. And then once they move and they're, they're um, running successful businesses, then the next group will go in and the next round that's available, or if it's an open ongoing round, they'll say, okay, I have confidence that they're not, this isn't a, a trick to try to get me criminalized again. And then you'll see more people participate. And then only then can you even consider and start having conversations about what enforcement could look like. I think most of the time we do all the work to set it up and then we uh, we, we, we shoot ourselves in the foot by enforcing too early. And then we take away all that trust that we gain from the legacy community. We take it all back. And, um, and that's where we do ourselves a disservice. And then the third part is the access to resources that they need to be successful. So all that enforcement money that we're spending early before the round that even people who are legacy can participate in, if we utilize that money to build the small businesses as they get licenses, we would be building that robust, high-performing, um, uh, inclusive industry that we all want to see. So yeah. again, it's looking at creating uh, creating a trusting environment and rebuilding trust between government and legacy community. Um, it's making sure that where the timing is right on when rounds are open, as well as when enforcement happens again to avoid the second war on drugs. Right. Um, and then the third thing is access to resources, really being smart about how much do you want to give to enforcement and, and put back in the hands of law enforcement versus how much money are you going to put towards building these small businesses? And fortunately, as we're figuring this out, we have a company such as Raw saying, I know you guys are, are still working through this process and how it should work. We'll step in and we'll make sure these resources are available as much as we can and role model that to the rest of industry. So it's showing government that you're not by yourself as far as creating resources for these guys. We're stepping in. We're part of this community and we're going to make sure that there's some funding from us to supplement what you have to go to your legislators and ask for year after year. The bottom line is the legacy operators they represent what diversity, equity, inclusion is. They are BIPOC and, and to a great extent, not uh, sitting out all saying that's everyone, but really you're talking about if it's social equity. I mean, this is where I'm coming from. When I put it together, social equity should include those entrepreneurs that have never been in any kind of legacy space and just want to be in and have a chance to be building a business and be part of the industry. But then the same vein these legacy operators need to have that same opportunity. They need to be going in the doors together. That's what it looks like to me. I couldn't I'll, agree with you more. Uh, the fast track to diversity, equity, inclusion is including the legacy community. We're already diverse. I don't think it's anything that puts social equity aside. I think it's a parallel stream of activity to ensure that we build the strongest industry that we can um, and the safest industry that we can. And when I remember, I, I didn't get the host that episode of, of Empire when we talked to Urban Aroma, but I just remember I brought that question into our host and I said, listen, we need to ask about that. Speaking up for legacy operators that, that you know, uh, M1 from Dead President, it was, quote, this is a closed quarters market. That's just how it's always been. So when the government sticks their finger in it, they got to recognize that first. I'm not hearing enough about the culture that's behind the actual plant. Yeah. And I'll tell you, ever since I heard that, I was like, Shit, I'm so into this point. And then this it really just opened my eyes. And I'm glad that the Justice Foundation is here for that. Outreach and support, underserved communities, and also not just the fact it's again when he mentions culture, you're talking about the Rastafari community, social equity participants and legacy operators is unprecedented. We need all that together. And I'm glad that the Angels brought this into the into the process. I'm glad, Cheryl, you're part into this process. And Josh, I'm glad you also saw this in, as well and said, let's get this in here and let's contribute to the cause. And not just that, uh, I also want to ask Cheryl that also there's other issues where you're doing the work with legacy cannabis operators transitioning into the global market. You also have educational programs, uh, the Women Warrior Initiatives, the Safe Smoke Sesh Series, Octagacy, Mental Health First, the Evolutionary Cannabis Series, and other roundtables. So talk to me about just in general what Justice has been doing as this work for legacy operators and for those other underserved communities. 
Yeah, thank you for recognizing that work. And, uh, you know, shout out to M1 and uh, UMI. M1 is on the board of the Last Prisoners Project and UMI, as I mentioned, right. is on the board of the Justice Foundation. So uh, we we really have an affinity with being culturally authentic um, and aligning with that culture of the plant that you spoke about. Um, you know, with the Justice Foundation, we, again, I told you, we went through this process of earning trust, which meant, you know, I was at all these legacy events and whether they're parties, whether they're sessions, and then and really um, introducing to the culture education just for legacy and doing it in legacy spaces. So utilizing legacy spots for our education. Um, and that was a key part of it. And then really making sure it's a two-way feedback loop as far as what the needs are, not telling, because, you know, when you, we, you mentioned, because New York was our pilot market, but we're, we're all a global organization, but even in New York, there are borough specific nuances with regards to the cannabis market. So it's really not painting everyone with a broad brushstroke. It's really um, uplifting and enhancing that culture the same way you have to do with hip hop. And, you know, with uh, M1 and UMI and, and Stick with Dead Prez, you know, they come from that hip hop culture and they, and, you know, they have experience how hip hop has been mainstream to the point that you're not seeing, you know, the decision makers being the people who are authentically part of the culture. We want to make sure that doesn't happen with our cannabis industry. And we're going to continue to do our programming at the Justice Foundation specific to whatever culture, what's culturally needed at last Two weeks ago, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with, um, you know, uh, legacy operators, shout out to PA Scrooge. And I, when I'm doing this work all around the world, I'm always aligning with the, the culturally authentic people. But you see people stepping up. You see our legacy guys stepping up and saying, we need to have leadership. I'm happy to be the leadership. And I'm going to make sure that we have the guys that I know and that we are um that I'm comfortable by being the person up front, even though there is a certain amount of risk in that, to make sure that we have a place in the space. And that's what our program is all about. It's like, one, you know, we, I hate for legacy operators to only know that there's a, a new emerging cannabis industry when they see on their block a dispensary open. That is disrespectful. Right. That is disrespectful. They need to know every step of the process and when they can interface, when they can give responses to public comments. Um, Unlock, me working with Unlock, we submitted public comments for the card license type. We submitted public comments for the advertising rules and legacy operators came together on Zoom saying, we like this, we don't like this. This is not our culture. We need to be able to, to do this type of branding because that's authentically our culture. And then having uh, myself collate those, that feedback and submit it as public comments. That type of work is un unprecedented, but you have um, brilliant minds in legacy and we cannot um, ignore that um, think tank um, or else it'll be to our own detriment as, as a community, as a culture, as a society, um, and as an industry. We, you know, people like to talk about business acumen and legacy operators and business acumen. When we see multi-million, billion-dollar companies posting losses every single quarter, but nobody challenges these people with all this Fortune 500, Fortune 400 um, background, whether they lack business acumen, when they're losing money every quarter, but that the legacy guys who had consistently been profitable, whether it's, you know, maybe uh, in the illicit industry, but consistently profitable, we're saying that they don't have business acumen. No, they can use a bridge to how to be in compliance, how to properly record things because, Recording things was their death before. So you, we have to understand that that's the only thing. The reason why they don't do it is not because they don't want to be compliant. They're happy to be compliant, especially when you tell them, hey, you can have a 401k and do the same thing that you were doing before right. and love the plan. Yeah. They're happy to be compliant. They, they're not going to surface from underground just to lose their dispensary. When they're making, when they make that decision, it's a hard decision. It's a committed decision. And they are here for the compliance. As long as you just treat them fairly, give them opportunity to learn like any other industry with compliance. Real estate agents have compliance. They have to learn that too. You know, um, just you really give them the grace to um, be their best selves. And, and that's their desire. And we'll be surprised at how they step to leadership and really um, create and nurture 
this industry for the new people who are coming into the industry. Right. Uh, Josh, I want to take a minute. Well, real quickly, uh, make mention of for Justice Foundation, just to make sure everybody knows where to go to. Uh, you can learn more about the Raw Seeds Fellowship Grants at rawjustice.com, R-A-W-J-U-S-T-U-S.com. Applications are being accepted through August 31st. Our website for Justice Foundation is justice.foundation, J-U-S. T-U-S dot foundation, or you can also text Legacy Love to 801-801. And Josh, I also got to make mention of where the giving spirit of just doing the grants here for Legacy Operators, and that doesn't even, it also, I mean, I can't even go without mentioning about how much you also give in general with raw rolling papers. The fact you have raw giving in the last 18 months where you've done work in, you know, in Africa and working for, you know, putting out Two and a half million dollars in direct cash contributions, a wide variety of charities helping to bring clean water to many thousands of people, water to the sisters and mother Teresa hospitals in Ethiopia, homeless pets, no kill rescue shelters, planting hundreds of thousands of trees, so much more, such a giving spirit and being also contributing a part of this. There's not enough time for me to go ahead and go through all this, but you know, Josh, I really appreciate you taking time to go ahead and contribute as you already are giving soul yourself and also giving to this cause and Cheryl, I'm glad that knowing all your work you've done, you know, heralding the cause here for legacy operators. This is very important. And I'm so glad we got a chance to have this talk together. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a lot more than 18 months, by the way, we've been doing this for a long time and the goal is to keep doing it and finding new ways and new ways and new ways to do it even better, which is part of what this is the goal. You know, you just want to uplift people. That's really the goal, you know, and that's what the that's what the goal of the plant really is. That's what the goal of a rolling paper really is. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? You find your you find try to find incredible ways, you know. And we're lucky enough to meet Cheryl and the Justice Foundation, and oh, I hope that we'll continue. They renamed raw like giving this. 18 months ago, but you've been doing it longer than 18 months. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. The clarification. So this has been wonderful. Justice Foundation, and find more again. Website is justice.foundation, J-U-S-T-U-S dot foundation and rawjustice.com r-a-w-j-u-s-t-u-s.com to learn more about the raw seeds fellowship grants so again been joined here with josh keshman of raw rolling papers cheryl murray powell cheryl murray powell of the justice foundation thank you both for being on with us really appreciate it thank you yeah thanks for having me great to see you again and yeah as you pass the joint you know just elevate and amplify the mission yeah I hope some good legacy operators hear this message. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you both for being on. And thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.